Hello, I'm David Aiken. Welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, March 25th. On the show this week, the government's pot bill was in danger of being snuffed out as some senators push back with concerns over testing, policing, health impacts and more. Will the government accept any changes to their bill? Then, from Russia to Facebook to everything we click on every day, just how secure is our data? And do we want our government more involved or less? We'll ask the government's cybersecurity chief about protection and privacy in a world of increasing cyber attacks and manipulation. And the powers of unelected independent senators. Should they be allowed to kill legislation that's at the heart of an elected government's mandate? But first, late last week, the Senate nearly struck down the government's pot bill over concerns ranging from moving too quickly to not going far enough to curb black market sales. The Trudeau government wants cannabis legalized by this summer. But critics say the bill and the timeline need some adjustments. Is the government listening? For those answers, we interviewed Mark Holland. He's the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Public Safety. And we interviewed him on Friday from Parliament Hill. All right, we're here on Parliament Hill because of an extraordinary parliamentary procedure going on in the House of Commons, which was on the floor right above me. It's a filibuster, essentially, by the Conservative Party. And actually, that's where we want to start with Mark Holland before we start with some, some pot news. Essentially, I have had a briefing from one of these government officials, a security official. I have had this briefing on background and been told some information about uh, Canada, India, security, the Atwal affair. And the Conservatives are making the, what I think is a reasonable point. Why can't they have the same briefing as well? And that's, I guess, what this is all about. What, well, I mean, I, I don't think that's what it's all about. We've already voted on that matter. We're currently voting on the budget. But um, the reality is, the uh, look, there was uh, Mr. Atwal, uh, when we discovered uh, his background, uh, his invitation was rescinded. Uh, the MP who made the, the invitation has apologized. Uh, and, you know, we have enormous respect for the public servants and the, and the information that they give to us and the advice that we give us. Uh, and, and we rely on that each and every day. Uh, so. You know, I think uh, we've answered those questions. Uh, we want to move forward. There's a lot of issues to talk about, including a public safety committee where we have uh, the firearms legislation and, uh, and many other things to be doing. All right, so I just want to set the context in because you've been up now for uh, pretty much a day straight, yeah. uh, an hour no sleep. sleep in the last 18 hours. So I had a good night's sleep before we had a chance to date this. Let's talk about pot. Let's talk sure. about cannabis. That's a big item on the government's agenda. And this week, we learned of some regulations about how the actual pot will be marketed and packaged. And there's some reaction from the industry that says this is going to limit their ability to market their products and more importantly it will work against a key public policy goal which is get the black market out what, what do you say to those folks in the industry now say this is the wrong way to go about marketing it well sure uh, two points broadly one we have uh, just a, a, a terrible problem when it comes to cannabis today uh, we have uh, really it's been stated uh, one of if not the highest uh, use of cannabis by young people in the world we have a seven billion dollar uh, thriving criminal enterprise that is uh, that is booming as a result mm -hmm. of selling cannabis uh, and so we need to change uh, our approach it hasn't been Working. It's been a total failure. And I look to, uh, not just I, the entire government looks to the success of, uh, of jurisdictions uh, on tobacco control, as an example, where they started with plain packaging. And if we look at tobacco and we look at that hard, arduous journey to drive down the use of tobacco, if we could have started at day one with plain packaging, started at day one with tight regulations on marketing, sure, I understand that folks um, are, are going to be uh, you know, perturbed by that because it is going to limit how they can sell to young people. Or 
or be attractive to young people, but that's the very point of what we're doing. We're standardizing the packaging, we're making sure that it isn't attractive to young people, we're making sure their warnings are present there, and that they can't use marketing as a tool in the way that tobacco had. So, I mean, this seems to be the where the, the public policy goals are a bit at odds with each other. You want to get rid of the black market, which means it's got to be convenient and easy for me, the consumer, to buy what I was buying on the black market, while at the same time, you don't really want people to buy this stuff. Well, I think what we're saying is, and again, tobacco is a, is a really great example. There's a lot of people using cannabis today. That well, just on that, why not more like wine or beer or spirits? Why would why? Well, because again, I think I think that if you look at uh, where we are today, which is that we have a prevalence rate of uh, youth smoking cannabis that's in uh, that's not only in double digits, it's double what uh, tobacco is. The only way that we're going to drive that down is not by making it more attractive and marketing it to kids, but by doing the opposite by saying, look, if there are those that are already using it or make the choice to use it, then it's going to be legally available. But the idea of allowing it to be marketed in a sexy way or in a way that's going to be appealing uh, to children, um, you know, we, didn't we learn our lesson from tobacco on that, mm -hmm. where when those tactics were applied, we didn't see a stabilization of tobacco. We saw it leap up. And certainly what we do not want with cannabis is to have uh, the problem intensify. We want it to go the other direction. For those that are doing it currently and who are adults, uh, that finally can make that choice, but we certainly don't want to be marketing to children. We want to go after the predators that sell to children, uh, the, the, the multi-billion dollars that are made on the backs of children in alleyways, because a thug doesn't care that they're selling to a kid. And we certainly don't want, once we legalize that market, to have products, like we did with tobacco, that are attractive for children, that market children, and try to get them on that product. Um, let's talk about the legislative track here. The bill has cleared the House of Commons, and this week, bit nervous, but it did get into second reading in the Senate. Uh, what's your sense as to where, if any, there's flexibility for amendments by senators on the legislation? Well, let me just say that I think the uh, the Senate has done very good work thus far. Uh, we just had the vote coming out of the Senate. I think there's been a lot of great debate there. Uh, and, you know, we took a lot of time consulting with Canadians, consulting in the House of Commons, and now you're seeing that consultation uh, happen in the Senate, and we're deeply respectful of that. Um, and, and we're also confident in the way that it's moving forward, that uh, the points are being heard, the need to control and regulate um, uh, cannabis, to keep it out of the hands of young people, to bring in that $274 million for law enforcement to make sure we go after uh, 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 high driving because look David the reality is today there are more uh, people killed um, as a result of driving high than alcohol and that's mm. today that's before a legalized regime we want to see that plummet we want to drop that as low as possible so that's why we're applying those resources and we're making those arguments and working closely with the Senate timeline originally the government was shooting for July 1st of, uh, of next year we've heard the health minister say provinces will need some time could be the fall if the Senate tends to delay it, is the government worried that this is going to be in place this year? Could it be next spring? When do you expect pot to be legal? Well, we're working closely with the Senate, and uh, and we feel at this point in time uh, confident in that timeline by the end of summer uh, that we're going to see a, a, a regime that will control and legalize cannabis. There'll be people who say the police just aren't ready yet. We should not go until they're ready. Well, David, the problem is it's happening right now. Uh, there are, as I already have said, more people killed high than through alcohol. Um, it is a massive problem on our streets, and our police are absolutely ill-equipped to handle it. Our cannabis rates are among the highest in the world, mm -hmm. and so we can put our head in the sand and pretend the problem doesn't exist, or we can turn the corner and finally start doing something about it. Mark Holland, the Parliamentary Secretary, the Minister of Public Safety, 
It's back to the House of Commons and more filibuster for you for several more hours. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, David. Being proactive against cyber attacks is a top priority these days of the Canadian government, especially in recent weeks, recent news. But what is the threat and where does it come from and how vulnerable is our federal information technology infrastructure? Well, joining me now is Scott Jones. He's the Assistant Deputy Minister at the Communications Security Establishment, CSE, and he is in the, the person in charge of government cybersecurity. This is what you think about 365 times 7. The rest of us just come in from time to time. One of the issues we've been talking about in the last week is our federal elections. Um, and I know that CSE did a report after the 2015 election and asked, was there any foreign interference and found, not really, low level, I think, uh, mm -hmm. hacker right. activism. Would we expect it's going to be like that in 2019 at this point? So I think we can, we predicted that You'll, you'll see an increasing level of influence. Certainly the technology is evolving, and we're seeing more and more use of social media, for example, to shape our, shape our opinions mm -hmm. um, and actually to drive um, some of that content. But one of the things that's important is increasing the resiliency. So starting these discussions, talking about it, um, and then also looking across the three different spectrums. So the election itself is quite robust in terms of how it's run, but politicians um, and political parties themselves and media were the ones that we judge more vulnerable to this type of influence operation. I, I want to pick up on political parties because, of course, in the United States in 2016, it was the Democratic chairman, John Podesta, who got fished or whatever and had his uh, emails compromised. Um, does CSE consult with parties or is it available for some advice on what parties themselves can do to harden their systems? Certainly we've made our advice available. We have briefed all political parties in Canada and given a general cybersecurity briefing. Um, and the government has indicated that we would be available to provide okay. assistance if, requ if requested. And are you able to give a general sense of how you might feel our political parties are, are ready and battle-hardened? Well, I think with just like every other organization, um, cybersecurity is always balanced against every other priority in right. terms of affordability, cost, etc. It's certainly become the issue of the day and how to how to deal with it. Um, I wouldn't have the information to judge as an individual parties. Right. Certainly, um, the the need to be more vigilant is is there. Well, and speaking of resources, the the government in the last budget, as you know, uh, set aside seven hundred fifty million dollars over five years specifically for cybersecurity. Um, would you have some rough ideas where you think that those resources might be deployed in sort of what areas? Well, I think we've, we've seen some of the, some of the key initiatives, um, one being a renewed cybersecurity strategy that will be announced by Minister Goodale coming forward. Um, but other, other elements, for example, the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity to be housed within my organization, CSE, uh, to consolidate federal government expertise. Um, and, and that's to, mostly research and trying to figure out what new threats are out there, things well, like that? Also working with critical infrastructure, working with vendors, um, providing advice and guidance to Canadians that mm -hmm. we can all use in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, that's the goal of the Cyber Centre is to really unify the voice of the federal government so that there is a single trusted place to go for that type of that type of advice. And that work now is happening in various different departments, maybe RCMP, defense, public safety, is that the idea? What's it is, it's, and so you, you see this right now. Um, we, we do work well together, right. um, but to, to bring that to bring that together, to form that center, it's really critical that um, we have one voice, that we're able to go forward. So that's public safety, for example. The Canadian Cyber Incident Response Center does a pretty phenomenal job of reaching out to Canadian critical infrastructure. So marrying that with the capabilities that we have at CSE, as an example, um, and bringing it together to form this new entity is what's what we're heading for. Right now, the House of Commons Defence Committee is studying Canada and NATO, and as part of those, uh, those hearings, uh, many uh, defence and intelligence officials have testified that the number one threat to NATO and to Canada, uh, China and Russia. 
I wonder from a cybersecurity standpoint, would state actors from those countries be the top two threats? So when you're looking at it from the intelligence perspective, um, you, you concentrate on countries. When you're looking at it from the defense perspective, you concentrate on how do I protect against everything okay. and everyone. And so for us, we really don't look at country specific. We look at how to protect against the majority of the threats, what type of vectors they would use, um, any organization could use because for us, any compromise is significant. Well, let, let me rephrase it slightly then. Would the capabilities of state-sponsored actors to engage in offensive cyber warfare, whatever you want to call it, be better than non-state-sponsored, I'd say commercial actors or individuals? The, the issue with cyber, it's, only, it's, only, it's not about the capabilities that the adversary has, it's about your capability to defend. So if you haven't taken the steps you need to make yourself more resilient, you really aren't. Um, you really make yourself an easy target. So you don't need to be that sophisticated as a, as a offensive actor, for example. Right. If the defenses are low, and so for us, it's really about how do you raise the level of defense so that you take out all of that low-level cyber activity, that unsophisticated activity, uh, and that's really what this is about. And that's actually one of the goals of the center is to really raise that bar. Right. Oh, the uh, one of the things I'm curious about as well is. CSE is the head count. I think is roughly 2,300 or something like That's that. Right. I understand the Chinese have about 200,000 in the CSE equivalent in China. Is it a fair fight when, in terms of being able to defend from threats wherever they become, knowing that there's literally an army of people that are knocking on our door? One of the key things we've talked about is it's important to, to take a team approach to this. Yeah. Um, cybersecurity isn't just the responsibility of the federal government, or, and certainly not just CSE. We need to work with academia, industry, critical infrastructure, and individual citizens, given the information they need to make, to make us all more cyber resilient. And that's one of the key things. It's, we, can be a, we can be a group of a million, or right. 33, 36 million, uh, if we work together and we find new ways of working together on that. The, the big thing in the news this week, of course, was the Cambridge Analytica Facebook story. Our privacy commissioners launched an investigation. That's a privacy issue. Was there anything in that whole story that raised some cybersecurity issues? Well, for me, cybersecurity and privacy aren't really mutually exclusive anymore. Okay. As the technology is evolving so quickly, um, and there's so much of our private lives that are now being collected and, and looked at by private companies, that's starting to become a cybersecurity issue um, because there's now targets. And also, how do you manage that? And the technology is so sophisticated um, that you really can't separate the two. So we certainly do have cybersecurity issues, for example, as we're looking at the next election in terms of mm -hmm. influence, influence in terms of targeting or micro-targeting. So how does that, how do those techniques start to impact the cybersecurity realm? Just quickly, um, our civil infrastructure, power grids, stuff outside the federal realm, perhaps provincial, municipal, does that keep you up at night in terms of those vulnerabilities there? So I think if you, if you worry about all the threats and the possibilities, that would keep you up at night. Um, what gives me comfort and lets me sleep is that people are taking this seriously. Organizations are investing. Organizations are really looking to try to make ourselves, our, our infrastructure more resilient. And that's one of the things that actually we've seen through the partnership model. It's really critical that we do that. They're experts. Right um, we want to support them. Excellent. Scott Jones, thank you so much. And good luck with your work keeping us safe. Great. Thank Cyber safe. Much. Thank you very much. The loyal opposition at that time did exactly what the opposition was supposed to do, and that is work towards defeating government legislation. That contradicts the, um, the mandate of the Senate to provide sober review, and that review is best done in committees. That's where it historically has taken place, and let's get on with it. A couple of senators talking about their role during the recent showdown over the government's cannabis legalization bill. Should senators have the power to kill government legislation? And how independent are the senators who have been appointed by the prime minister? 
Hugh Siegel spent nine years in the upper chamber. He worked for Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and has long advocated for reforms to the Senate. Joining me now from Toronto, Hugh Siegel. Hugh, great to have you on the program. And I guess the first question is, is it really appropriate to call these independent senators independent, given the events of the week? Well, I would say that they are because they were appointed in a very different way from the way in which prime ministers have normally appointed senators in the past. They have not been appointed with regard to any uh, formal partisan affiliation, where that used to be one of the requirements in the past for either liberal or conservative senators, which is all we used to have in the Senate. And um, when you look at the fact that uh, since the inception of the new system, there have been 23 pieces of legislation which the present Senate has amended. In previous cycles, you'd have maybe three or four pieces of legislation over a five-year period where amendments have been made. Not all the amendments in the present circumstance have been accepted by the government, but many amendments have been. I think it is a very different place. And um, we don't have traditional whips except for the Conservatives. The other sides are basically organizing themselves as crossbenchers, which is the tradition in the British House of Lords, although I'm not sure they're quite as organized as they need to be, but they are making independent decisions and there's no control over how they vote. So I think that does constitute a measure of independence we did not heretofore have. And remember that our Constitution, the British North America Act, really sees the Senate not as a body to stand in opposition to the duly elected House of Commons, because, you know, in our system, it, it's the ballot box that is the source of legitimacy. It is a complementary body, which is supposed to look at bills after second reading to see if they can be improved, whether there should be some changes made, amendments considered. But the old tradition, which has gone on both in the British system and in our own, that if a government campaigns on a program and the government gets elected, that program, when presented and passed by the Democratic House of Commons, should be at least debated and voted upon in the Senate and not stopped on principle, but taken to committee. And that is what the Senate, in it, to its credit, decided to do on the uh, marijuana legislation the other day. And of course, the cannabis legislation was absolutely central to the liberal election platform. Canadians knew what they were voting for and presumably wanted the government to proceed with that. One of the things that I found fascinating this week covering the discussion of senators outside the chamber, particularly senators like Andre Pratt, the former journalist and independent senator, it was almost Hamlet-like to kill or not to kill. They're still trying to see how far up the, the ladder they can go. What are the boundaries of the powers of these independent senators? And I wonder about your opinion. Should they, and they do under the act, of course, be allowed to kill such legislation? So my view is that the Salisbury Convention, which is what governs the relationship between a duly elected House and an appointed House, which is what we have in both the United Kingdom and Canada, means that the Democratic side always has to win. It always has to prevail. So in principle, if the Democratic side passes a piece of legislation that was part of the platform of the government that got elected with the majority, then I do not think it is constitutionally appropriate for the members of the Senate to stop that legislation before second reading and not let it go to committee for careful examination in a complementary way. But a lot can be done in that process, important legislation has come through the present process on national security and other issues where amendments were made, where ministers went and appeared before the committees and were prepared to accept amendments. The same thing was true with respect 
to the legislation on assisted death and dying. So one cannot make the case that this present system isn't working, even though I think it's fair to say that my former colleagues in the Conservative caucus wish the new system wasn't there, wish the old system was in place. And what's really interesting in terms of their desire to help Mr. Scheer form a government someday, which is completely understandable, is this hard reality. If the present prime minister fills the present vacancies on the independent, vetted basis that he's been doing so far and does nothing more, then the majority of independents will be in the Senate for nine years after the next government is elected in 1919. Should that government be re-elected from the present administration and they continue to fill vacancies just as they come up, that will keep an independent majority in the Senate for an entire generation. So I would suggest to my conservative friends, careful what you wish for, because if you want Mr. Scheer to be prime minister, and that's completely understandable, should he be successful, do you want to really establish a tradition that the independents in the Senate, who will be in a majority for some time to come, have no obligation to respect the promises made by Mr. Scheer in good faith, for which he may get elected and which he will then try to implement through a democratically elected House of Commons. So there's, there's some risks here that are not just checkerboard risks, but chessboard risks, and I would hope that all sides give that some consideration. I've only got about 30 seconds, but let me get your thoughts. Has the experiment worked about independent senators or too soon to tell? Well, if 10 out of 10 is perfect and 1 out of 10 is a failure, I'd say it's a 6, but I think it's heading in the right direction. Hugh Siegel joining us from Toronto today. Hugh, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm David Aiken. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.